Did everybody have a good afternoon? Get some good relaxation in? Sweet. Awesome. I hope you're ready for, for tonight. Um, I'm, I'm ready. So I'm ready to go. Ready to rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that's not on video. Thank goodness. <laughs> oh, darn. Oh, well. Just uh, tag me and I'll prove it. Everybody on the, already knows I'm crazy on there anyway. So, uh, would you would you guys pray with me real quick, Father? Uh, we thank you that for for the truths that we've sung about tonight. And Lord, uh, even as we we look at well, as we look through your Word and as your Spirit uh, shows us, Lord, areas uh, where we need to grow. Lord, may we remember that. There is a fountain filled with blood, an endless stream of, of unchanging, unending treasure in, in the blood of your son, Jesus, that you plead before the Father. Lord, we, we love you so much, and Lord, I pray that as we, as we learn from this message, Lord, as you speak to us, address us individually, Lord, may you remind us of your grace. May we know that the, the heights, as Paul prayed in, in Ephesians three sixteen through 19, the heights and the depths and the riches of your grace, of your love, of your mercy through your Son. Help us, Lord, to be this type of man that we're going to talk about today. Help us. We, we, we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christian men, we should all desire to grow. Grow in in maturity, spiritual maturity, grow in Christ-likeness. In Colossians 3, Paul tells us to put off the old man, to put on the Lord Jesus in all of life. You see, as Christians, we should desire to think like Christ, to be like Christ, and that's in all of our areas of our lives. We should aspire to the highest standards of holiness by the grace of God. And the Bible holds out one group, specifically only men are allowed to this office. And notice I said only men. Because we're talking about Christian leadership. We're talking about leadership in the church. And these men are to serve as examples. They're to serve as models of Christian maturity. We're talking about elders, pastors, bishops, overseers. And elders are qualified on the basis of their character. The Bible only provides one skill, the ability to teach. And another, a recent convert. All the other qualifications are related to character. And just to be clear, this isn't an examination to see if you're qualified to be an elder. Um, that'll be Pastor Greg's job. <laughs> so my, my task here today, and he does it quite well, my task today is to see, help us see through God's word as his spirit illuminates it to us, to see if our lives meet the high standard of godliness and holiness and where we need to grow in them. That's, that's a, a challenging task. Because, again, as I said, that's all of us. We all need to grow in these things. There's not one of us that doesn't. And if you think that you don't, we need to have a talk. We do. Uh, uh, immediately after this. Do not pass go. Do not leave the room. We will talk. Uh, biblical scholar and theologian D.A. Carson said that the list of qualifications here are remarkable for being unremarkable. What, what, what he means by that is that this is, these, these traits are to, to typify all of our lives. As, as I said, elders are to be the examples, but there are to be presence. These traits are to be present in every Christian's life. Every church is to be full of men and women, although I already said women, this isn't about church office, but only men can aspire to the office of elder, bishop, or overseer. But all every Christian is to aspire to these traits. And so the first trait that we see here 
in 1 Timothy 3, and by the way, we're going to be going, this is like a, a, a tour de force, if you will. We're going to be going through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, we're going to be jumping around to a lot of different texts here today. Um, so we begin with the qualification of above reproach. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, it says, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This is repeated twice in Titus 1, 6 through 7, which says, if anyone is above reproach, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And the thing to say immediately is that every Christian is called to live a life that is above reproach. Um, the, the, legal, the, the term above reproach is a legal term. It indicates a kind of innocence in the eyes of the law. It means that you will not be able, you may get accused of something, but those charges will not stick. Uh, they may accuse your conduct, but your conduct, your way of life will acquit you because you are blameless. And I actually prefer, just as a side note, I actually prefer the word blameless here rather than above reproach because there's something to be said about blameless. In fact, the, the, the Psalms often talk about how we're to be blameless in the sight of the Lord. It's, and what they mean is that it's a, it's, a, it's a term that indicates that our life is a righteous life. We talked about how uh, the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to our accounts, um, you know, and we don't deserve this. And, and Paul's point here is that your life is so credible, your reputation is so credible, you're an example worth following. You make the gospel look believable. You don't live contrary to the gospel. You don't live a double life. That's what Paul says, it's saying here. This is a summary attribute of person that upholds God's revealed will and word in, in his word, the, the Bible. But it also must be said, and I've heard this taught in an unfortunate way, uh, to suggest that being above reproach somehow means that you need to be perfect. Um, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It means that when we sin, we confess it, we turn from it, because we have one who is utterly perfect and utterly sinless in Jesus. He is the only one who was ever sinless. That's not us. And the primary means through which you grow in this is, and I, and I prefer the word feasting rather than reading because, well, we can just say, well, I, I read a book. But we're talking about the Bible, the Word of God. We're talking about enjoying God. This isn't a duty that we just somehow check off every day just to, just to get our spiritual points. We need, to, we need to take our Bible reading seriously. We need to enjoy it. We need to feast on God's Word and we need to apply it to our lives. We need to pray privately, you know, and with, with your family and by yourself as well. You need to faithfully attend church on, on Sunday. You need to participate in the sacraments if you haven't been baptized. You know, talk to Pastor Mike. You need to partake of the Lord's Supper and so on and so on and so on. By the way, there's, there's a lot that could be said here. In fact, even in your notes that you're going to get, um, I, I literally did not expand on everything because there are books like this that are written on this passage, on these two passages that, that we're going to consider here today. But these are, these are the very means, which I, what I just described, are the very means through which God extends his sanctifying grace, by which he helps us to grow. Um, you cannot expect to be above reproach if you do not make use of the means that God has given to us. And now we turn to the husband of one wife. And what, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6 is he saying that you need to be a one-woman man. And what he means here is he's talking about your marital and your sexual life. In fact, that's what it means, to be faithful to your wife. The covenant marriage is a covenant under God. 
between one man and one woman for life, for life. So we need to be one woman man. You know, elders are to be examples of sexual integrity. But this goes out to every Christian. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says to abstain from sexual immorality. You know, this is, this is true for every Christian, whether they're, they're male or female, married or single. The call to sexual purity is among the most serious. It's also among the most prominent commands in, and those aren't suggestions, God's saying, well, you need to be, take your sexual purity, you know, maybe seriously. He's, he's saying, you have to do this. You're his child. He's, he's taken your heart of stone and he's replaced it with a, with a new heart, with new desires and affections. This, this provides the, the basis for you being able to obey God. So God's not saying, giving you a suggestion. He's, he's telling you, you need to do this because I've, I've saved you. You are mine. And now you need to obey me specifically in this area. And again, we're not going to, for some of us who have struggled in this area, we're not going to do that perfectly. As I said, you know, we need to have an arm around the shoulder, not a finger in our face. That's what accountability is. In fact, that's a good picture, definition even of friendship. An arm around the shoulder, a hug, a prayer, listen, care, um, love one another. But Paul also says to some in the 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 church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, they, they had been sexually immoral, and he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to rejoice. And this is amazing. In 1 Corinthians six eleven, he says, in the midst of saying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, then he, then, he, then he stops, and then he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Look, you were living however you wanted to live, and they did. They, they had all sorts of problems in the Corinthian church, which is what we're going to look at, talk about next, tomorrow morning. But they, they had a new identity. Um, their past did not def- was not to define them. They were to live in, in light of who they are in the present and to look forward to the future because God has taken their hearts of stone and replaced it with a new heart, with new desires and new affections. They are citizens of the king, and they are to live by the mandates of King Jesus. And this qualification is a call to devotion. It's a call to devotion first to God and then to one's spouse. But it's also a call away from adultery. It's a call away from wandering eyes, a wandering heart, and wandering hands. It's a call to be pure and chaste, to take your relationship with God seriously, not to give it just lip service. It's, it's a call to be exemplary in character and conduct, whether in marriage or singleness. It's a call for the married to enjoy their sexual relationship with their spouse. It's also a call for the unmarried to willingly submit their sexuality to the will and to the care of their loving, caring God who sees all and knows all. And nothing is beyond his gaze. You know, he, he sees what we do in secret. Uh, sober mind, the next thing that we'll consider is Sober-minded, self-control, and respectable. First Timothy three two, which is paralleled in Titus one eight, it says that elders must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And, and being sober-minded means to be alert. It means to be self-controlled in our decisions. Those who are sober-minded and self-controlled are also respectable. It means others think well of us. We live out the daily the practical wisdom that the Book of Proverbs describes. In our daily lives. In Romans 12.3, Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, 
the Bible is clear that elders are to exemplify these traits, but they are to be present in all of our lives in increasing measure. Like I said, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. These are things that we need to grow in for a lifetime. We, we all need to be growing in these things. And the next thing is hospitable. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.2, an overseer must be hospitable. And he echoes this in his letter to Titus in Titus 1.8. Now, what's interesting about this, in the days before Holiday Inn and all the modern hotels, Christians were expected to extend hospitality to traveling Christians and itinerant preachers. They were to feed them, to care for them, to, to love them in a tangible way because the inns were dirty, they were unsavory, they, they weren't safe. And the word here for hospital is extended to other forms of hospitality. But at its heart, it indicates a willingness to invite others not only into your home, own home, it's into your own life. And hospitality is a, it's a tangible, outward display of godly character. Hospitality creates opportunities for relationships, for discipleship, for evangelism, for so much. It creates a natural context and opportunities for modeling marriage, for parenting, and a whole host of other Christian virtues. You see, we're not supposed to say one thing and then do another as Christians. That's, that, that's being hypocritical. We are to teach, yes, what other people believe, but we are to demonstrate it as well. We're, we're to believe the right things that come from God's word, and then we're supposed to do those things. James one twenty six tells us that we're not to be hearers only, but doers of his word. And you know what? Again, that's by grace. That's not of our, you might read that and I think, well, how do I do that? It's only because it was grace that you can, you can do that. So it, hardly anything else is more characteristic of Christian, Christian than loving others and showing them hospitality, inviting them into your lives. Next is sober-minded, gentle, and peacemaking. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 2-3, Therefore an overseer must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And he says in, uh, to, to Titus in Titus 1, 7, that an overseer must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. The positive characteristic in this passage is, surprise, gentleness. And it's opposed by the two negative characteristics of violence and quarreling. See, every mature Christian should pursue gentleness and flee from violence and bickering. To be gentle is to be, to be tender, to be humble, to, to be fair, to know what posture is fitting for any occasion and time. It in, indicates a graciousness, a desire to extend mercy to others, a desire to yield both to the will of God and to the preferences of others. And such gentleness will first be, begin in the home and only subsequently later in the church. It's a rare trait. We have, uh, since Pastor Greg is here, I, I, I get to talk about him. Um, Pastor Greg exemplifies this characteristic. Um, we are blessed to have an example of a sh- loving, caring, shepherding pastor. And that's why we love him. We, we see it. Uh, pastor Mike also um, exemplifies that. To pursue gentleness is to imitate Jesus. See, as Christian men, we are to control our temper. Um, one of my, in high school, they, um, you know, when you change the temperature in the room, um, he would go like this. Because in high school, I could tend to be a little bit too hot. A little bit, imagine that, me being a little too hot. Uh, having a b- little bit too much energy in the room. Come back a little bit over here. 
<laughs> a little bit that way, please. A little less uh, being too excited. Temper that. What his point was to temper my zeal with love. Um, still, still working in that area. God, by his spirit, is, is working on me in that <laughs> in a big way. And um, the reason that this is important, this gentleness is important, is uh, our response to others when we're attacked, when we're maligned, and when we find ourselves in difficult situations, it shows where our hearts really is, where our allegiance is to God. And we're to be marked at all times by patience, by tenderness, by a sweet spirit. We're not to be verbally abusive or and verbally, yeah, verbally abusive or physically abusive. We're not to engage in physical threats of, of violence. We're not to bicker with each other. We're not to engage in, in, in arguments with people where we attack them and, and, and uh, crush them, you know, just to, just to gain points. Um, that's, 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 that's not being wise. It's not walking in wisdom as the Proverbs describe. It's actually contrary to how the Christian life is described. It's not the way of Jesus. Even when we're pushed and exasperated, exasperated, we should not lash out with our words. We should not crush a bruised reed or snuff them out. Well, there's many texts that we could turn to about this and a lot of other things that I've already said. But, uh, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control, and remember, these are command. These aren't optional for us. They're not like God said, "Oh, mm, you know, that's a good idea. Uh, I'm just going to add that in there." No, these are these are commands. These are things that we have to grow in. These are things that God expects us to see in our lives. Oftentimes, we we have this quick. We live in a very quick culture. You know, we can drive through McDonald's and get a quick get a meal or Jack in a Box or uh, one of the, any other restaurant, and so we tend to come to our Christian lives that way as well, and that's dangerous because it's a long Christianity. That the Christian life is is for the long haul. We need to have a long haul perspective, a whole life perspective on the Christian life. Not snap your finger and or go through the the uh, drive through and you get your meal. Um, no, this is this is uh, this is eternity. This is forever. Um, this is not drive through spirituality. <laughs> and let's say this. I'm going to touch on this in just a minute. We, we have to grow in God's grace for this. Uh, there is grace for this. And the more that we see people, and I love what uh, Pastor Greg and Pastor Mike say about this, we have to pray in, when, in such difficult situations and, and pray and ask, God, help me to see this person through your eyes, through the eyes of the chief shepherd. Help me to see them. And I can't even tell you, I could give you so many examples of that um, in my own Bible study that I have the privilege of leading. There was uh, some guys in there that were challenging to say the least pastor mike smiling at me right now <laughs> he knows who i'm talking about and there were times when let me be honest uh my response was not good it was far too quick far too cutting far too exact which being exact is good theologically precise but not in the way that i was doing it because they lacked love and we're called to speak the truth in in love uh, we're, we're called to be gentle. We are to be gentle so we can serve as a display of the one who deals gently with us. And be temperate. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2-3, An overseer must not be a drunkard. And again he tells Titus, Elders must not be open to the charge of debauchery. 
They must not be a drunkard. Titus 1, 5 through 7. Can I just say here that this isn't just referring to alcohol? This is referring also to addictions. It relates to self-control. That's what Paul has in mind. That's the larger picture of what he's saying. And yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about drinking um, in excess. That's what we're talking about here. Drinking in excess, not in moderation. But if it causes you to stumble to uh, somebody else to drink, Romans 14 tells us that we are to abstain, um, not cause our brother to stumble. Like I said, there's there's just a lot that could be said about that. Um, but he also says, and Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what's amazing is when we're we, when God takes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a new heart, with new desires, new affections, he comes and takes residence in our hearts and in our lives. He, he fills us with his Spirit. Um, and he enables us to live, which enables us to live the, the Christian life. He, and he empowers us for this task. So when Paul is saying here, be filled with the Spirit, he, he's talking about an ongoing sense. In an ongoing sense, we, you know, in the Old Testament, that God would empower people for specific tasks and a specific mission. He would set them apart. Well, guess what, guys? We have been set apart by Christ. We are bondservants of Christ of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and we need to be continually filled with the Spirit to engage in this mission of, of, of making and maturing and multiplying disciples. That make and mature and multiply disciples. And the reason that I said that this relates to self-control here is because God's people are only to be enslaved to himself. He is, our, he is the only king. There, there are no... There are to be no competitors. Um, chief among them, alcohol or addictions. We are to be self-controlled. Remember, that's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Um, and also, the, the Puritans called this dividing the audience. When, when Jesus, you see, when Jesus had a lot of crowds around him, what's amazing is that Jesus would say, come, pick up your cross and follow me. Not just like maybe, but, but count the cost. Follow me. And that, that's a clear claim. Jesus is saying, I am the rightful Lord and the only king, and I will, I will not allow you to have any other lovers. Um, I want all of you. I want all of you. I want all of your affections and all of your life, not just some little tiny sliver of it. I want all of you. And so that's why this is so, so important to be temperate, to be self-controlled. That, that, that's weighty. Count the cost. Lovers of money. Paul tells Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, an overseer must not be a lover of money. Likewise, he tells Titus in Titus 1.7, an overseer must not be greedy for gain. And finally, Peter writes to exiled elders in 1 Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God, not for shameful gain. And, and, and Jesus in Luke 6.45 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when, he, when, he talk, when Jesus talks in this way, he's often talking about other things like slandering and all sorts of other things that uh, the, the human heart, uh, uh, Jeremiah 17, is, is wicked. It's, you know, without Christ, we are truly as bad as it gets. Um, and that's because our depravity is absolute and total. Um, there's no question about it. And that shows up in how we use the stewardship of our money. God own, the Psalms tell us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And what he's saying there, the Psalms is saying, is that he owns everything. He is our rightful ruler and king. And he gives to us gifts like, like money, our talents and our, our gifts and our abilities. 
Because money displays something very important about our relationship with God. God not only requires this standard for elders, he requires it for every Christian. In Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior, says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where, notice this, your treasure is, there will be your heart. Where your treasure is, what he's saying is, look, where your, where your life is going, the trajectory of your life is going, that's where your heart is. Your, 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 your money, you can track where your life is headed by tracking your money. You can track your spiritual growth. How, how, that's, a, that's a challenging word. You know, J- Jesus, is, a lot of his strongest teaching was about money. In fact, he taught a lot about money uh, as, to, to help us understand that we are stewards. You know, the fact that we have breath and life, um, the fact that I'm able to stand up here, that's, that's an act of grace, by the way, um, because God gave me a gift. God gave you a gift. Where's your, where's your treasure? What are you investing in? Where's your life going? Where's your true identity and meaning and value and worth? Th- those are questions, diagnostic questions, aimed to help you see where's your life headed. You know, the, the, the wisdom literature of the Bible, you know, your, your proverb, the book of Proverbs, etc., etc., has a lot to say about the danger of idolizing wealth. But it'd be, it'd be a mistake of me to only talk about money as being negative. There's a lot that the Bible says positively about money. And I included a lot of scripture in your notes. Um, this message would have been longer if I had gone through all of that and all of everything else. I assure you, it would be over an hour. Um, so, you're welcome for that. <laughs> so, Paul uh, taught the enduring value of generosity when he taught the church in uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, what's amazing is we just talked this morning about the, the God of grace and mercy. Uh, we don't deserve it. And what's amazing is Paul says here, God loves a cheerful giver. Hmm, wow. That's, a, that's, a, that's amazing because th- this is the God who has done all he has done. He has died in our place and for our sin. He's been buried and he rose again. And God says that he loves a cheerful giver. That's, a, that's, incredibly, that's incredibly powerful when we understand what Christ has done. And that should compel us to, to not, we're not just talking about money here. He loves a cheerful giver. He loves those who have not only are recipients of that grace, but give it out. They're generous with their time, generous with their gifts. They use their talents and abilities and education and experience and all of it to live a life under the lordship of Christ. God loves a cheerful giver. And yeah, that does include our money, okay? It just does. But it's also more than that. Any problem with money is not the fault of money itself. It's a problem with us. It's a problem with our hearts. And it's the Christian's duty and delight to hold loosely to money, to wealth, that God has given to us and to give generously to the Lord's work. And now we turn, as if this wasn't challenging enough, to consider leaders being a leader in your home. Well, this doesn't stop, does he? He doesn't. He wants to help us understand. He wants us to grow and to be this type of man. In 1 Timothy 3, 4-5, Paul says this, An elder must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for his own church? Uh, yeah, for God's church. Excuse me. Lost my place there. Uh, Paul likewise tells Titus that elders should have children who are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You know, I've had to grow in this area of my life. Uh, the first few years of my marriage, as I've already said this morning, um, was not forgiving, did not extend forgiveness very easily, very prideful, very wrong. God's grown me in this, and so I can, I can say this statement as, as I'm growing in this, continue to grow in this area, that a man's leadership within the home proves his ability to lead in the church. The two are intertwined. An inability to lead in the home means that you, you should not be leading in the church. And but on both sides of my family, there are great, my great-grandparents. They were both itinerant pastors and evangelists, and they did not meet this qualification. They sacrificed the family on the altar of ministry. See, in this way, the home rather than the office of the classroom is the testing and the proving ground of a man's leadership. You see, if a man cannot tenderly and lovingly lead his family, he should not be given the responsibility to lead in the church. If he cannot excel at one, he will not excel at the other. And there's the big question of what it means for children to be believers. And, and the point here is that what Paul has in mind is children who are believers, meaning faithful. Justin Taylor is the vice president of publishing at Crossway. And what, he's, what he says here is, is helpful for us. He says, what must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined, undisciplined rebelliousness. If the children are still at home and under his authority. So how do we understand this passage even as we widen its application? Well, we need to be growing in God's grace, in skill, in our family relationships. We're just to grow. Fathers must lovingly lead and teach their children. They must exercise kind and patient authority over them. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, I want to stop here and I want to tell you something. Um, growing up, I did not have a relationship with my dad for 16 years. And, and God had to convict me because I had a lot of anger for how he, my dad treated my, my father. Um, and he hurt me. Hurt. And I was reading in my Bible and one day I was a junior in high school. And I was reading in Matthew 6, 12, and 14 where it says, If you will not forgive, you will not be forgiven. And this is not from one of the apostles. This is from Jesus Christ. He says, you will not be forgiven. And God convicted me. He pierced my heart. He showed me that I had anger and bitterness and resentment built up. And yet here I am. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I say I love Jesus. People are asking me questions, asking me to help them. And wow. Well, I got whacked over the head in a big way. The next day, my, my dad and I, I was on the varsity golf team. And we went out. Instead of going golfing, we went for a walk. I said, Dad, I, I need to tell you something. I need to, I need to ask for your... I've, I've told him what happened. And I said, Dad, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? He did. In fact, that restored our relationship. It restored our relationship. And there's a much longer story to that but as well. But God reconciled my dad and I. Um, it changed his life. It changed my life. Um, I'm so thankful for my dad. In the, in the, God, through Moses, tells the Israelites, both men and women, 
in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, these words I, that I command you today shall be on your heart, shall teach them diligently to your children. In Hebrews 10, 10, it says God disciplines for us, for our good, that we might share in his holiness. So from beginning to end, every parent has upon themselves a responsibility to teach and to train their children and exercise kind, caring, loving oversight over them. So the next thing that we need to look at here is maturity and humility, both areas that I am still growing in, um, in a big way. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.6, an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So this is a, is a call to spiritual maturity, to grow in God's grace. We, we learn that this is important for two reasons. Because humility is accompanied by the virtue of humility, and because immaturity is accompanied with the vices of pride and condemnation. So we all begin our lives in, in Christ at different stages as babies, and we, we grow up into maturity. And this call to maturity is given throughout God's word, not only for leaders, but for every single Christian. The author of Hebrews the author of the letter to Hebrews, excuse me, says this in Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good for evil. And he calls the congregation in Hebrews 6.1 to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. You see, we're not, we don't grow by, by just understanding principles. We grow because of the gospel. We grow deeper in the Christian life. Because the depths of the, the Christian life are in the gospel. They're in growing and understanding of what Christ has done on our behalf and what Christ commands us to do because of the gospel. You see, God expects his children to grow in maturity, which will lead to growing in humility. In fact, this gets to the very heart of this entire message. Christian leaders, all Christians, are to strive to grow to be like Christ. We are to grow in maturity. And as we grow in maturity, we will grow in humility. J.C. Ryle was a, was a great bishop in the 19th century, and he said that the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller's, Dr. Tim Keller is a pastor, senior pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, New York. So the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not something we grow beyond. It's something that we grow in. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a was a 20th century preacher, and he said, a uh, well-known preacher, and he said that the Christian life begins with grace, and the middle is grace, and at the end is grace. That means that we need grace from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. And everywhere in between, we need grace. We need grace. In John 3.30, Jesus says that he must increase, but I must decrease. John Calvin said that the Christian life is, is three things. Humility, humility, humility. Ouch, 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 ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Respected by outsiders. You see, even, a, even how our standing before the world is important. In order to be considered for leadership, every Christian man is to pursue the respect of outsiders. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. You see, you... All of us, we all bear the res- this responsibility to live unblemished lives before the face of God. The standard for an elder are for every single one of us. We only have one pastor here today, but we have lots of elders. 
there are good and godly men at our church. And if you're, oh, excuse me, I forgot you, James. Sorry about that, buddy. Um, we have two pastors here. Excuse me. Good night. Okay? Stop judging me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll take my bow now. Um, anyways, you, you guys have a high standard for your life and conduct. Your doctrine, your life, and your testimony, they set an example for all of us. That's a high and a scary thing. But what needs to also be said is that's true for all of us. We have high standards. And the qualifications that I've listed here today that we've walked through are for all of us. You might be feeling, you know what, I'm a little uncomfortable right now, Dave, to be honest. Feeling really inadequate. Can I just tell you that's the point? It is. I'm right there with you. We cannot do this in our own power. We cannot do this on our own. We have to grow in the gospel. We have to grow in understanding of it. We have to feast on the word of God. As Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need of Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. On our own power and our own strength, we will not be able to ever attain to this gold standard. We just won't. But with God's help and a heap, a whole truckload of his grace, and, and a huge truck, by the way, uh, of his grace, which, by the way, huh? Yeah, yeah, semi. And by the way, when, when Paul says in, in, in Hebrews 1 that the grace of God abounds, it means that it, he abounds and abounds. It abounds infinitely for all of our lives, for all eternity. Wherever you are today, and I know that's all over the map for all of us, we need to grow up. We need to not sit idly by and say, all is well with my soul when it's not well with your soul. Don't just say, well, I don't care. Just don't. It, it, this matters. Our, our culture is telling men just to be passive. Sit on the wayside. Don't lead your families. Don't love your wives. Don't, don't care about what you consume or what you watch or, or anything else. Just sit by the wayside. Just come home from your job, punch out, sit on the couch. That's not manhood. It's not biblical manhood. It's not what God expects. We are commanded to love our wives. Because we say that we love Christ, we have to love our wives. We cannot live a double life. We need quality and godly men to step up at our church. We, we, we need it. It's not a want. This is a, this is a need. It's a need. It's a need not only in our church. It's a need in our community. It's a need in our cities. It's a need in our world. It just is. And I know some of you, you're just starting this journey. Some of you have been walking this journey a long time. But what I'm saying is, is not to come down on you and beat you up. If I wanted to do that, I would have already done that. But I would have to do that to myself too. So that wouldn't make any sense. So, so just begin. Begin this process, please. I'm pleading with you. Begin. Stop. Stop just sitting by being passive. And wherever you are, whether you're a church leader or a ministry leader, you work a nine-to-five job, whatever, there is always grace to begin again. Always. Every day, the book of Lamentations tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. They're new every moment, really, truly new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. What's amazing is these standards are high. They are so, so high. And the stakes are so very, very great. But the grace of God that rises to meet these challenges, rises to meet these standards. If you're struggling today in any of these, <laughs> I plead with you, please just repent. Stop living in false guilt and shame. and Come out into the light. I promise you, the air is a lot better than, than smacking yourself over the head. <laughs> By the way, I, I, I do that too. Thanks. Uh, I need help too. Yay. Uh, you need to seek help. 
get in an accountable relationship. This, this is a safe place at this church. It's a safe place to open up, to share about what's really going on in your heart, what's really going on in your life. This is a safe place. I came to this church. I was hurt by another church. And I can't even tell you. might even cry. That's okay, too, because Jesus wept. And real men cry. Oops, there I go, blowing that up. Um, <laughs> so we need you guys. What we consider tonight is the gold standard. It, it is our standard that God has assigned to us. He's commanded us to it. You know, I've already kind of said a lot about where God's working on me. But one of those areas specifically is being gentler on and in my finances. And for you, that's going to be a different. God knows and he sees it. We all have a great need of, of his grace. You need to look to Jesus now. He's all you need. He is yours and you are his. And we need to not just say the right words, that we're, we're going to walk through the motions and we're going to give intellectual assent and we believe that these things are true. That's that you would have missed, you missed the whole point of the sermon if you heard that. No, today you need to begin this journey and you need to strive by God's grace. And if you need help, guess what? That's why we have a men's leadership team. That's why we have pastors. That's why we have elders. That's why we have a church that we are to care about one another. And we do it exceedingly well at this church. In fact, that's one of the, the, the strengths of this church. And it becomes, it's because of our pastoral staff. It's because of our senior pastor. Because he's a shepherding, godly man. I could talk about him because he's not here. So he'd be like, mm, I'm uncomfortable right now, Dave. <laughs> he would be. But it's because he loves Jesus. And he gives us an example of what a man of God is, is to be. So as we wrap up tonight, I want you to sit here. I don't want you to talk to anybody yet. I want you to spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it takes. And I want you to pray, truly pray. And I want you to pour out your heart to God. If you're broken today, guess what? We have a God who meets us in the midst of our brokenness. He is a refuge and a help for us in our time of need. He is. If you're struggling today, guess what? We have a Savior who suffered and bled in our place and for our sin. And he is pleading the merits and the treasure of his endless, infinite blood But for you right now. I don't know where you are today. But God knows and he sees. And that's why I'm pleading with you. Because I know that, I know that you could hear this sermon and you could say, you know what, that's great. All of that is nice and everything. But I don't want you to leave this weekend just saying nice words and being able to regurgitate a bunch of information. That's, you, you would have missed the point again. I want, your, I want you to pray sincerely. Lord, help me to be the man that you want me to be. And you know what? When I prayed that six months later, I met my wife. And my wife changed my life. So if you'll pray that humbly, earnestly, God, help me to be the man that you want me to be. You know what? We could see this entire men's ministry change rapidly by his grace. And there are 270 men in our church that need you. And there's men at your jobs that need you. There's men in our cities that need us. we got a lot of work to do. I mean, and we're just talking about in Boise. We're not talking about in Seattle and Louisville and in Houston, Texas and San Antonio. So please, please spend some time. Pray. If you get convicted, don't run away. Just, just acknowledge your brokenness to God. Acknowledge your sin to God. He'll, he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you of your sin and wash you new in the blood of Christ. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. 1 John 1, 9. But if we say we don't have any sin, 1 John 1, 7 and 8, we lie. We are deceived. So please spend some time praying, earnestly praying. 15, 20 minutes, however long it takes. We're not in a hurry here. This, God wants to do, I believe, he wants to do hard work. 
And heart work is where the Spirit convicts us. And that's a loving thing that he does. He does it because he loves us, because he cares for us. So I've been praying that God would, this would be a moment like it was for me in 2005, that you would cry out and that you would pray, God, help me. Help me to be the man that you want me to be. So let's pray. Father, even now, as I stand here, I, I don't deserve to stand. I don't deserve to even be able to share this message um, because I am utterly, utterly deficient and you are utterly sufficient. And we could say all the right words all day long as if that meant something, which it, it does mean something. But Lord, I, I pray that not only would these words resound in our minds, but that we would know them in our hearts, but that we would know them in our hearts and our minds, Lord, as you've called us to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And God, there are so many men who are hurting and struggling. And I'm tired of it. tired of seeing men hurting and, and struggling and on the sidelines because of their sin. God, you've given us a standard. And we are to aspire to this standard. God, help us. Please help us, Lord. And please help these men here today. Help them by your spirit to be the men that you want them to be. Thank you for the men that, that you've put in my life, in the past, in the present, the men that you will even in the future to help me see areas where I need to grow. And Lord, I, I pray for every man that they would have the same, men that they can look up to and say, you know what, this man, he is a standard in this area. I want to grow to, to be like him in this area by God's grace. And even there, Lord, there's room for growth. There's always room for growth. And all of these things that we've considered today, you, Lord, are utterly perfect and spotless and blameless in every respect. So, Lord, we, we thank you for the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. Without it, there's no hope, but you've given us hope. So, Lord, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, for the endless, infinite treasure of your blood. We thank you also, Lord, that you have saved us. We thank you that you plead the merits of your, your blood before the Father for us. What a kindness that is. Such great love flowing down, down, fountain filled. In Jesus' name, amen.